Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today renowned attorney, writer, and legal advocate, Anthony Julius. Mr. Julius is partner and deputy chairman at the law firm of Mishkan Durea. Additionally, he holds the chair in law and arts at the Faculty of Laws at the University College in London. Previously, Mr. Julius was a visiting professor at Birkbeck University of London in the Department of English and the Humanities. Mr. Julius has been involved in high-profile legal cases, including representing Diana, Princess of Wales, as well as historian Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt with the successful defense in the David Irving Holocaust denial case. Mr. Julius has also written a number of books, including a study of T.S. Eliot's anti-Semitism. And today, we will be discussing Mr. Julius's groundbreaking work, Trials of the Diaspora, History of Anti-Semitism in England. As you can see, it is not a thin book. It is a thick book. But as I mentioned, it is groundbreaking and really covers the full gamut of English history anti-Semitism. Again, thank you very much um, for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Just going back in time at, at the beginning, at least in England, what are the key characteristics of medieval English anti-Semitism? Well, can I can I take a can I take a step back from that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Question. That's what history is all about. Yes, exactly. Because I have a I have a, a kind of a schema in my um in my analysis of anti-Semitism and um what I say about medieval anti-Semitism um I think will have greater meaning if I put it in the context of the schema. So, if that's okay, so my my it's it's very difficult writing history for very many distinct reasons. One relevant reason is uh, making sense of um, uh, an intense uh, and deep continuum of individual events. What's salient? What's not? What's mere repetition? What's new? Um, what are the patterns? What are the themes? In what direction is history moving? Um, it's not enough to write what's called a chronicle, one thing after another, um, because although chronicles have their value, they don't really explain the past. Um, they just uh, render it in some way analogous to a wide-angle lens photograph that takes in everything but in an undifferentiated way. So contemplating pretty much a thousand years of history, um, that was my first challenge, how to organize my subject so that um, it wasn't just one awful thing after another, um, and insofar as there were latent patterns to draw them out. Um, and the, the, uh, conclusion I came to in the kind of backward and forward of engaging with the 
material and formulating hypotheses, always provisional, always tested then against the material, revised and so on. Um, what I was able to identify uh, was a, a small uh, number of distinct um, anti-Semitisms uh, that were partly to be um, defined by reference to period um, and partly by reference to content. So the four uh, were as follows. First of all, medieval anti-Semitism. Secondly, literary anti-Semitism. The anti-Semitism that lives in, drives, deforms um, works of literature. Um, then a, a, um, a modern anti-Semitism, which was in, in the uh, case of England, an anti-Semitism that um, was inaugurated in the uh, 17th century and essentially is already now played out, but um, certainly was alive until the 1960s. And then a, a contemporary uh, uh, anti-Semitism, which um, essentially engages with um, Israel and the, the Zionist undertaking. Um, so I've identified these in terms of periods, but uh, English literary anti-Semitism um, essentially runs from um, the anonymous ballad literature of the uh, Middle Ages and, and Chaucer through to uh, present times. So it has a kind of uh, run, which is greater than any of the others and um, which indeed has a future as well. So that's my that's my schema. Now, if I may, to come back to your question, um, yes. medieval English anti-Semitism um, is um, really to be distinguished uh, by uh, reference to three characteristics. First of all, it was innovative. Um, secondly, um, it was comprehensive. And thirdly, it was lethal. Um, innovative because no other state at that time uh, was doing what it was doing um, to its Jews. It was the first state that expelled Jews. The expulsion in 1290 was the first such national expulsion. There had been earlier local expulsions, but it was the first national expulsion. It was the first, uh, the first formulation of the bloodline, um, was in England. Um, so it was innovative. It was comprehensive, um, in that it addressed and, uh, practiced all the uh, distinct lines of attack on uh, Jews, uh, defamation, expropriation, um, judicial and extrajudicial uh, killings, um, mob attacks, imprisonments, executions, expulsion. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a, a, an anti-Semitic practice that was overlooked. Um, theological anti-Semitism 
um, state-led opportunistic tax on Jews and so on. Um, lastly, it was lethal. Uh, Jews died. Uh, Jews uh, were forced out of their homes. And um, when the expulsion finally came um, and uh, did its work on a, a much diminished uh, Jewish community, the, the Jews, the not quite clear how many Jews there were, but the Jews, the Jews who were expelled essentially disappeared from history. There are no records of what happened to those um, exiled Jews. So the first Jewish settlement in England, which essentially began in the uh, decades following the Norman invasion in 1066, came to an end in 1290 um, with no um, aftermath to it, save in literature, save in the literature of um, of the expelling state. Why, in your opinion, was England the first to expel? Why was it innovative? What were the reasons behind the expulsion? And why were Jews subsequently allowed to return to England? Um, well, so, so why innovative is your first question. Let me answer that. Um, and it's an interesting question because the answer points in two quite different directions. In, in, in one direction, um, it's it's a, a pure and uninteresting contingency that it was in England and not in France. See, um, and the reason it's uh, the reason that is that you might say the developments in Europe generally had reached a point at which somewhere or other um, these new things, for example, the blood libel were going to emerge, and it just so happens that it was in England. When I was, uh, a long, long time ago, when I was at school and studying economics, um, I, I was very interested in um, the emergence of uh, specifically Keynesian um, economics, the e economics associated, the economic doctrines associated with Maynard Keynes, the, the great British economist. Uh, uh, early to mid twentieth century economist, um, and 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 what I found was that around the same time that Keynes was writing his 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 general theory, um, another economist called Kalecki in a completely different part of Europe was developing similar ideas, and they had no connection with each other. And the reason that it was so was because. The state of economic thinking was such, and, and the state of the world economy and the national economies that comprise the world economy was such that the pressure on the people who were engaged in these issues, um, was driving them through to similar solutions. So you could say 
I mean, you know, the hub deal, but you could say that the, that the, that the kind of theological, um, popular pressure in hostile thinking about the Jews, um, was driving the, if you like, the avant-garde anti-Semites through to the formulation of the blood libel. And it could have happened anywhere. It just so happens that it happened in England first, very soon after it was in France and elsewhere. And a certain amount of, um, uh, I think, rather pointless scholarship has concerned itself with how the uh, blood libel uh, was disseminated um, on the hypothesis that it had this one point of origin in Norwich. And then there are arguments about, well, so-and-so traveled to there and then there, and could have met this one and that one. But actually, I think the more likely explanation is those were the times. So, so that's, that's part one of the answer to the question why England, it was in England, but it could have been in one of any number of other places. The completely contrary answer, which nonetheless is also true, is that England was a, a, a very developed uh, society and state, um, administratively speaking, in terms of national identity, in terms of the intimacy uh, a cooperative uh, intimacy relations between church and state. Um, it's uh, strong even then uh, uh, centralizing um, uh, kind of centripetal energy uh, meant that um, the, the thinking about Jews and the engaging with Jews, the need for money um, uh, came together in a way that in other states or semi-states, undeveloped states elsewhere in Europe would not have been possible. So, so it's, it's a kind of odd combination of the entirely contingent, re- responsive to more general pressures and the very specific advanced features of the English state. And, and what was the role of the church at that time in British anti-Semitism? Can I just, uh, again, do that irritating thing of of addressing a detail in your question before answering your question? Because I know it's a, I know it's a, I know it's a thing that English people uh, pedantically quarrel about when um, non-Brits talk about English and British indifferently, as you've just done. Um, my my book very specifically is about English anti-Semitism. It's not about Scottish anti-Semitism. It's not about Welsh anti-Semitism. And it is not about the anti-Semitism in Northern Ireland. Although I do write about the philo-Semitism of James Joyce's Ulysses because English literature in the modernist period was essentially um, an international literature. Um, so, so I, I just want to say that because I wouldn't want people to important distinction understand the ambit of the of the work, and because certainly 
I mean, even to this day, of course, as we know, but certainly in the largest parts of the history that I surveyed, the, dis- the differences between what was going on in England and what was going on in Scotland, say, were considerable. It's just that we, we've done a lot of interviews about World War II and the British Empire always comes up. Of course. You know, British how Empire. Can you, how can you avoid the British Empire? England. Anyway, um, so you're asking me, of course... And having said that, in the Middle Ages, um, there was no difference, no distinction made between the English church and the Scottish church. In in, in Reformation and post-Reformation, major differences. But um, but then uh, not. So you're asking me about the role. The role um, of the church was uh, pretty much um, consistently... uh, hostile uh, and um, persecutory uh, in the sponsoring of the blood libel um, in the theological polemicizing um, in the um, enforcement of uh, church-wide rulings on distinctive uh, clothing for Jews and so on Um, it was it was as advanced um, an enemy of the Jews as the as the uh, English state was. Anything more about medieval that you would like to touch upon? I only to say this. I I, I maybe to say this. Um, I've noticed, particularly in America, a great deal of chatter about uh, uh, Judeo-Christian civilization. Um, And usually it's ideological chatter directed against Islamic anti-Semitism or or in advance of kind of broader ideological goals, the clash of civilizations and all the rest of it. Um, my uh, conclusion, based on my own study and immersion in English anti-Semitism, is that talk of a single Judeo-Christian culture, um, and in particular, the implication in that formulation of essentially harmonious relations between the Judeo bit and the Christian bit is just historically illiterate nonsense. Which is not to say that uh, uh, Jews and Christians um, are uh, at each other's throats or should be at each other's throats if they only properly understood the nature of the distinct positions that are held in Judaism and Christianity. Um, that's not to say that any more than it is true to say that there are, uh, uh, there is a Judeo Christian tribe, so to speak, um, in, um, it, it, eternal and radical enmity with a Muslim tribe. Um, but the, the depth of the uh, ideological uh, uh, antagonisms 
between uh, uh, Jews and Christians, Judaism and Christianity, not just in the Middle Ages, but, but very much in the Middle Ages too. It, it simply cannot be overlooked. And um, my own my own study of this period has made me really wary of uh, any talk of a, a Jewish Christian synthesis.